0: Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. Let's pray. O Lord, now as your word is spread before us, we ask again for your Holy Spirit's help. We need your ministry, O God the Holy Spirit, to help us rightly read and understand and apply your word. Help us and show ourselves and show thyself in holiness and an infinite grace in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And show it from this portion of Holy Scripture for our everlasting good and your everlasting glory. For we ask it in his name. Amen. How would you act if you were to meet with God? How would you behave if you were in the presence of Almighty God explicitly? What would your reaction be? Of course, there is a sense in which we are always in God's presence, of course. He is omnipresent, there's also a sense in which we are meeting with God right now in corporate worship. We enter into his presence in a special way in the context of Lord's Day worship. As we gather under the preaching of his word, as he speaks to us in his word, we are meeting with God, very much so. That's often how we refer to worship. We are meeting with the living God. Certainly, in light of this passage, we would do well to examine the attitude with which we approach our worship services. But what we have here in Exodus 20 is something a little different, more intense, more pointed. God is appearing physically before the eyeballs of his people. Now, the theological term for what we have here is a theophany. A theophany is an explicit appearance of God to a person, whether he appears in the figure of a man or in another fashion. You think of Saul on the road to Damascus. That's a classic example. Jacob wrestling with God at Peniel. Moses in the burning bush. And here at Sinai, of course. Now just a few seconds ago, we began by asking how would you react if God appeared before you explicitly? Would you be nervous? Would you have silence, move to tears? Trembling, perhaps? This passage has much to teach us because as Much as it is recounting and recording an historical scene, it's also descriptive and indicative of what occurs when mere mortals encounter holiness. We are undone. Isaiah 6 comes to mind. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews 10. We read that just a few moments ago. It is a serious, terrifying thing for sinful flesh to behold the almighty thrice-holy God. And having just heard these ten commands declared from Mount Sinai in all of God's thundering righteousness, Israel seems to be cognizant of what's being demanded of them as they are bound to live as God's covenant people. They realize what's being set before them and they cannot come to grips with it without being undone. This passage may be one of the most important passages of Scripture for the North American church in our day. What what a counter this is to the Jesus is my homeboy, casual, flippant attitude that pervades so many congregations. when We approach the living God. I want us to see four things here in verses 18 through 21. Uh, Another resource that I was studying outlined the passage this way and I thought it was a marvelous way to study through the text. Here we have the law of God. the law of God tells us four things. It tells us of God himself. And then the law of God tells us of ourselves. And then the law tells us of future judgment. And then the law tells us of Jesus Christ. So let's think through those four things together as we study tonight's passage. First, let's consider how the law tells us of God himself. Amidst all of the visual and physical and oral drama that is being played out here, the single most important point made in the Ten Commandments, reinforced here in the thunderclaps and trumpet blasts from the top of Mount Sinai, is that God is the transcendent, holy, holy, holy one. It's interesting, the mention of earthquakes and claps of thunder. These descriptors are used whenever God's holiness and his righteousness in his dealings with sinners are spoken of in the Bible. So, for example, 1 Samuel chapter 2 At verse 10, Hannah's famous prayer, Hannah declares, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. Or Psalm 18, David spoke of God answering his prayer for defense against his enemies. The Lord thundered in the heavens. The Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. Then he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. The prophet Isaiah later, later on spoke of impending judgment in very similar terms. And in Revelation chapter 4, John the apostle saw the throne of Almighty God and from the throne came lightnings and rumblings and peals of thunder. Throughout the scripture, when God discloses himself in holiness and righteousness and as the sovereign judge of all, again and again in the scriptures, this is the imagery that accompanies him, thunder and lightning and earthquake and smoke and tremblings at his appearing. But let's, let's make sure we understand God is teaching his people here. Right, this is not God merely showing off with some divine razzle-dazzle. God is teaching his people that as he speaks in his law, he speaks as the majestic, sovereign, infinite in holiness and majestic one. As God is declaring his law before his people, he is saying, this is who I am. As you hear this law, O people of Israel, you better understand me, my character and my disposition and my attributes. As we read this whole chapter, the whole chapter really, but especially these three verses, we are to come away with a sense an understanding of the infinite holiness of the triune God of glory. <laughs> Certainly not an exhaustible sense of that, but at least some sliver of a smidgen of a sense of that. As one man said, we are to see in his law a transcript of his character, an exposition of his purity. And these visual and auditory signs on the mountain are there to underscore and to highlight that truth. Close quote. You see, friends, God's law does expose us and our sin. It is a mirror by which the ugliness of our own wretchedness and depravity is exposed. The law does do that. But there is a step before that exposure that we must have. That is, before we see ourselves and our sin, before we see our world and its dysfunction, before we see our desperate need of grace, we are to see first God's majesty, grandeur his resplendent glory and the awesome white hot burning purity and solid glory the the heavy weightiness of his glory and the of his person and his work before we can see how bad we are or how bad things are or how desperately we need grace we must first see who god is in himself you ever been to a castle you, know, you you walk up to it, if you've ever been touring in a foreign country and you've gone to an old building, even a great big mansion of some sort, you, know, you, you walk up to a castle and there are, those, there are those who are so eager to get inside, which is perfectly understandable. Now, they want to go in to view the inner decorations and the luxury and the opulence of the royals or the nobility who live there. They want to see the art and the architecture on display, the, the rich tapestries hanging on the wall and the, the paneled walls and the marble halls. On the inside, what is meant to be conveyed is luxury and wealth and comfort and even hospitality, to convey this sense of plenty and abundance. But for fear of stating the obvious, before you come to the inside, you can first come to the outside. You come to the gate of the castle, and you look up at soaring towers and turrets. You see great stone walls arching into the sky, and you see these in some cases, colossal stone buttresses girding the sides of the structure, bolstering its weight. Your eyes scan this imposing edifice, this towering monument, and what is it meant to convey? Power, might, strength, something that is well defended, A, a soaring structure that is designed to impress and to dazzle and to cause your jaw to drop. It's an assertion that the one who dwells here is strong and important and powerful. You would do well to respect his or her boundaries and not transgress his goodwill. Don't hurry past the outside grandeur of the castle just to get to the inside grandeur. Stop and ponder and take it all in on the outside first because there is something important to be learned there first. Friends, there's a a temptation, isn't there, when we study the Bible that we want to hurry past all the details that we deem uninteresting in order to get to the practical stuff sometimes maybe often that's how we read our bibles and we think so what just 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 tell me what i need to do or tell me what i need to implement in order to make things better now asking the question so what can be a good thing when we are studying doctrine and theology That's why we believe in application, after all, in our teaching and in our sermons. We believe that the teachings of scripture apply to our lives and have practical outworkings for us as Christians. Yes, we believe that. But the main use of scripture is not merely as an answer to us and our needs and our wants. The main use of scripture is to display to us the glory of God. I love how one man said, "Scripture." Its purpose is to flood our darkened minds with his light, to drench our dry, parched, shriveled souls with his greatness. The law of God, like the Bible as a whole, has been given to us that we may know God and see God and adore God. Close quote. God is the main use of scripture, brothers and sisters. God is the answer to the question, so what? so what? You come to this passage, so what? Behold your God. That's what Israel are being taught here as they tremble at the base of Sinai's mountain. Behold your God, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, great and greatly to be praised. Do you notice verse 20? It seems contradictory at first, but it's really just underscoring and emphasizing and driving home this point. Fear not, for God has come to you to test you that the fear of God may be before you and that you sin not. Put another way, don't be afraid. God has come to you to give you the fear of God. What does that mean? God... And knowing who God is recalibrates and reorients our emotions, all our emotions, including our fears. In place of a mere paltry, anemic fear of man or fear of the things of this world, God gives to his people a far superior fear. A holy awe might be another way to put it. An inclination toward God as our king such that we are so caught up in God that nothing could be more horrible and nothing could be more dreadful than betraying his holiness. And to our sensibilities, we would desire nothing, nothing so much as living for his praise and living for his divine approbation and living for his pleasure and his smile. God has come and he has given his holy law. Not that we would be bowed down with our own self-awareness so much, there is that but really, primarily, overwhelmingly so, that rather that we would be bowled over with a godly fear and a holy awe in light of his glorious presence. So that's the first thing. The law of God tells us of God himself. But then secondly, and as a consequence of the first point, as we behold our God and his law, we are made to see ourselves. Another pastor a couple of years ago told me about this article regarding the massive volcano that erupted in Iceland 13, 14 years ago now, 2010 I believe. Uh, The journalist writing the article, it's this this long essay on the volcano and its impact on the nation, and he he said this almost as a throwaway line. When you watch this incredible display of seismic power, you become aware of nature's power to assert itself over our miserably self-important affairs. That's quite a statement, isn't it? This essay is about a volcano. It's not about ethics or philosophy, mind you. And yet, the writer here in this news article feels prompted to give this rather sobering confession. There's something of Sinai in that statement. When the man is confronted by his own mortality, he is aware that he is a moral creature. There's a a conscience in the man that is pounding back at him in light of this truth. This raw truth. That's what happened to God's people here in this passage. You notice how the people react to the lightning and the thunder and the trumpet blast and the smoke on the mountain? And most especially the voice of God, which shakes them? Verse 18. They're almost undone. And it's the voice of God. It's the law of God that they hear even more than the trumpet blast, even more than the fuming smoke, even more than the fires and the thunderclaps and the lightnings, they hear God's voice, and what do they say? You speak to us, Moses, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. They've become oh so aware of the vast chasm of difference between themselves and the infinite holiness of Almighty God. As each of the Ten Commandments is trumpeted forth from the mountain, the the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is piercing their consciences, you see, over and over and over. That's why we read through all ten of the Ten Commandments, just to rehearse them and refresh our memories. Israel's sitting here listening to these commands as well. Idolatry, blasphemy, Sabbath-breaking, rejecting authority, hating parents, hatred, lust, theft, lies, greed... They hear it and they cry, that's me. (laughs) I hear myself, I see myself in that law that you're telling us here, Lord. It's a horrendous ugliness, isn't it? That's what sin is, a horrendous ugliness. The exposure of our own hearts in light of the white hot purity and holiness of God. What an ugly, ugly sight to see my heart in the blazing purity of the light of the holiness of God. You speak to us. Don't don't, don't let God speak anymore, Moses. We, We can't bear it. Don't let him speak lest we die. Woe to me. I am undone, Isaiah says in Isaiah 6. Or Paul in Romans 7. I desire to do that, to do what is right, but I do not have the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do, the evil that I do not want, is what I keep on doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. That's what the Hebrews are saying here, the Israelites. They've now seen themselves. They've seen the condition of their soul. They've seen the moral condition of their very nature in light of God's purity and holiness. And it is wretched and it is ugly and it is horrendous and horrifying. The law shows us God, firstly. And then the law shows us ourselves falling short of the glory of God, secondly. And so thirdly, the law shows us the future. It gives us just a glimpse of the future judgment. What we see here at Sinai is but a foretaste of what we shall see when time ends, when time runs out at the last day and finally the Lord returns to judge the living and the dead. The New Testament helps us to see that as it borrows from the Sinai imagery numerous times. Perhaps one of the most obvious places is in Matthew 24. You'll know these words. Jesus said, On that day, the last day, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the power of the heavens will be shaken, all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angel with a loud trumpet call, and he will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to another. 1 Corinthians 15. The trump, and First Thessalonians chapter 4 also speak of that trumpet blast, that trumpet that first sounded at Sinai to announce God's righteous standard, indicting a sinful people. That trumpet will sound one last time when all the people who have ever lived will have their lives tested, their souls sifted against the holy law of Almighty God. You see, Exodus chapter 20 at the base of Mount Sinai is a preview of what's to come, a preview of coming attractions in the most sobering of ways. This is what happens when sin is unmasked. One day, when the Lord shall descend with that same trumpet and the earth shaking and lightning flashing, on that day the books will be opened and a final reckoning made. The habits and the thoughts and the omissions and the commissions and sins of all the lives of every man and woman and child who's ever lived will be placed before the great judge alongside his holy commandments, and a final verdict will be rendered. We see how the Hebrews, the Israelites at Sinai responded <laughs> they're cowering in fear, seeking to hide. Moses, you talk for us. We're not doing it. You speak for us, lest we die. Is that what we shall do, brothers and sisters? When you ponder God's holiness and your own inadequacy, your own moral failings and your own transgressions, both the minuscule and the flagrant, how are you inclined to react? Are you inclined to recoil like this, like Israel here, when you ponder the return of King Jesus to come and execute justice? If so, if that is your instinct, if that is your gut reaction, and that brings us to our fourth point tonight. This is why we so desperately need a good attorney to represent us in light of our high crimes against the Holy King and in light of the judicial verdict that's coming our way. If there is a judgment coming, and there is, if we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we have, then we need an awful good lawyer to plead our cause and plead our case. A really, really top-notch advocate for our case. The Israelites get that, don't they? You speak to us and we will listen. Moses, don't let God speak anymore lest we die. You, Moses, you be our mediator. You be our advocate. You you go into that darkness where God dwells and you speak to us, or excuse me, you speak for us and come from his presence and speak back to us. We're not going in there. You go in there for us. They needed an advocate to plead their case, to represent them before the righteous judge, and in light of the righteous law, to find an avenue for restitution and forgiveness and for clemency. Somehow, Israel needed such an advocate. All sinners need such an advocate. And more than that, we need a better advocate, even than Moses. We need someone who will do more than simply empathize with us in our guilty condition. We need one who can pay the penalty that we owe. One who will plead our case and who will make perfect satisfaction for our breaches against God's holy law. In other words, we need Jesus Christ, a better mediator than Moses. Hebrews 8, verse 6. We need Jesus Christ, worthy of more glory than Moses. Hebrews 3, verse 3. You remember that the blackness of judgment, the darkness that covered Sinai, and that darkness that will one day cover the earth on the last, the great and awful day, you remember that there was another day when blackness descended and enveloped the whole land, Luke 23, verse 44, at Calvary. And just as the ground shook at Sinai, and just as it will one day shake the earth when Christ comes again, you remember that the ground did quake at Golgotha, Matthew 27, verse 51. The very soil, the earth itself trembled as the holy justice as the judicial wrath and curse of God was poured out, but not upon us, the sinful people, but rather upon his son, the Lord Jesus Christ in our place. The one who knew no sin made sin for us, the one who died the just for the unjust to bring us to God. He takes the full penalty for us instead of us So that all who believe upon him, all his chosen ones, all his believing people, seeing themselves in the light of God's holiness, knowing how desperately they need mercy and grace, fleeing to Jesus might find the mercy that they need and discover that there is no longer for them any penalty to pay. There is no punishment left to bear. There is no curse left to endure. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. A theologian was once asked if he could summarize the whole Bible in just one sentence. He was a smart guy. He said, quoting Jonah, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's the whole Bible in one sentence. The man asked the theologian a follow-up question and said, all right, fine. How about just the New Testament? Can you summarize it in a sentence? And the theologian paused and smiled and said, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. The man said, okay, fine, I like that, but how about in a Bible verse? He said, I'll give you two. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Just as Dr. Wilborn preached last Lord's Day. The second Bible verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Beloved, this is the good news that you and I need to hear. And this is the news that the church takes forth to this dark and dying world. Wretched sinners need an advocate in light of a holy God, and one has been provided in Jesus, and he will take your guilt away, having made full payment for all who trust in him. Payment God cannot twice demand, once at my bleeding surety's hand and once again at mine. There's no penalty left to be paid, Christian. It's been satisfied to the full in him. So brothers and sisters, trust him tonight. Let's trust in Christ and may the church go forth with that song on her lips. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. No other work save thine. No other blood will do. No strength save that which is divine can bear me safely through. Praise God for his word to us tonight and praise him that in Christ we have exactly the advocate, exactly the representative, exactly the attorney, and exactly the mediator that our souls need. Praise him for it. Let's pray. Oh God, would you deal with us in your grace And would you continue to show us yourself and to show us ourselves, to show us the judgment to come and then to show us how Christ has borne it all for each of us who will trust him. Lord, bring us to him. And then as we cling to him, teach us what it is to fear the Lord, to forget self, to fear the Lord, to hide your word in our heart that we may sin not. O Lord God, seal these truths upon our hearts tonight. May we treasure them up and ponder them. Lord, seal them to us for our everlasting good and your everlasting glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.